The K-Pop Podcast is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. Are you looking to learn a thing or two about getting your finances in order, saving, and investing? Check out The Confident Wallet, a personal finance podcast series by T. Rowe Price and the Washington Post Brand Studio. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to Cape Up. If you watch the speeches during the March for Our Lives on March 24th, you'll never forget Naomi Wadler. I am here today to acknowledge and represent the African-American girls whose stories don't make the front page of every national newspaper. Her words rang loudest to me because this week's episode is with Andrea Ritchie, author of Invisible No More, Police Violence Against Black Women and Women of Color. It all starts with broken windows policing, where minor crimes are prosecuted aggressively in the hopes of preventing major crimes. Richie says that black and brown women bear the brunt just as much as black and brown men, from driving while black to walking while black and even giving birth while black. You can hear Richie talk about this aspect of the invisibility of black women and what we can do to change it right now. Andrea Ritchie, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Thanks so much. So the the title of your book actually says it all, Invisible No More, Police Violence Against Black Women and Women of Color. For the last at least five years, the nation has been talking about police violence against unarmed African-American men at the hands of, of law enforcement. And your book, which is a thick book, is filled with contemporaneous examples of black women who have also been victims of police violence. Why did you think it was it was so important to highlight those stories? Simply because um, I don't know. It it seems like uh, one of your former or your recent guests, April Ryan, was saying, no matter how high we climb, we're right. still invisible. And it seemed like no matter how high the volume got on the conversation around police violence we were still largely invisible. And it seemed like a, an important time. I've been writing the book for a long time. I'm actually um, going back to speak to my alma mater tonight at Howard, Howard University School of Law, where um, I realized as I was getting ready to go down there that the, what became the first chapter of the book was written in part there 15 years ago when I was uh, in law school. And it, it just seemed like that conversation needed to that the information I've been gathering since then really needed to see the light of day, that that it really needed to come out there in a form that was digestible, that people could use as a resource in conversations, and that to the extent that we were talking about police violence, that we made sure that we were talking about all forms of police violence and all the people it was happening to, and particularly in black communities, that we were leaving no lives behind. And when we said Black Lives Matter, we really meant all black lives. So it, it, let's go back all the way to the beginning. The beginning of the book starts with, I believe, is that case you're talking about, Eleanor Bumpers. In, in New York. For most people who are, who are probably listening, this is the first time that they're hearing their name unless they lived in New York City. But who was Eleanor Bumpers? Eleanor Bumpers was an elderly uh, grandmother. She suffered from a number of disabilities. She was living in public housing at the time. She was 66 years old. She fell behind on her rent, which at the time was uh, less than $100 a month. And the New York City housing police were called in to evict her from her home. 
And she was disturbed by this uh, turn of events and um, was angry when they arrived. And the result of the eviction was that she was shot dead with a shotgun blast to the first to the hand and then to the chest. And it definitely did spark outrage in New York City. Um, it definitely sparked protest. It definitely, the officers were uh, brought up on charges, but eventually acquitted. And then this case sort of subsided from the national conversation. And six years later, Rodney King was beaten by police in Los Angeles across the country on video, sparking this national conversation about driving while black, about police brutality, about the state of uh, police interactions with black folks in America. And I often say that, you know, if Eleanor Bumper's story had become iconic at the time that it happened in the same way that Rodney King's case um, uh, took in the same way that Rodney King's story became the story that governed our conversations about policing in the 1990s, then maybe in addition to talking about driving while black and um, excessive force, we'd also be talking about living while elderly, disabled, um, female and poor and how those factors put you equally at risk of uh, physical or fatal violence by police as uh, driving down the road as a black man. Yeah, that's a good point. Living while, we're used to saying, driving while black, but it's living while black. And you go through and talk about all the various ways that really black life is criminalized. You go on about the broken windows um, strategy that Governed New York City during the mayoralty of Rudy Giuliani in the ni- in all of basically all of the nineties. How does the broken windows strategy, which is credited with cleaning up New York, how did that play itself out in the individual lives of black women? I mean, it's played its uh, way out in on, on a number of ways. And I, what I want to say first, though, is that you know it still governs New York City under a progressive mayor, under a mayor who would argue his politics are 180 degrees radically sure. opposed from Rudy Giuliani's, and yet his policing policies and practices are very similar. Uh, he may not speak about them in the same way that Rudy Giuliani did. He may not tell mothers that it's their fault that their ki- children got killed by police and that they should take better care of them like Rudy Giuliani used to. But it's certainly uh, an approach that he uh, has endorsed and, in fact, hired the same police uh, commissioner to implement uh, Chief William Bratton for the first few years of his administration. And so what that's looked like for women in Euro- of color in New York City is very much what it looked like in, in the 90s, which is that one of the express targets of broken windows policing is uh, street-based prostitution. And so when we talk about, for instance, in New York City policing, we often focus on the uh, stop and frisk aspect of broken windows policing, just sort of routinely walking up to people who seem to be disorderly, who look like they might be up to no good, which of course encourages facilities facilitates, promotes racial profiling um, of black and brown communities and involves flooding of black and brown communities of police officers, you know, that happens to black women and women of color too. And often what happens in that context is also some physical and sexual assault. So uh, young women in New York City call stop and frisk, stop and grope. Um, They feel like it's an opportunity for police officers to touch them inappropriately, speak to them inappropriately, sexually harass them. So that's one way it looks. The other way it looks is that black and brown women are routinely profiled as being engaged in prostitution-related offenses using a statute called loitering for the purposes of prostitution, which basically means standing around with the intention of engaging in sex or some kind of sexual act for something of value. Of course, you can't tell what someone's intention is when they're standing on a corner. They could be waiting for a bus. They could be waiting to pick up their kid from school. Waiting for an Uber. They could just be hanging out on the corner. Or they could be trying to pick someone up, but not necessarily for money. But the ways in which it's in 
enforced are very similar in that black women and women of color are perceived to be inherently engaged in sexually deviant conduct. Um, there are these long-standing, we just came out of Black History Month, we're still in the middle of Women's History Month, long-standing associations between black women um, being framed essentially as inherently being involved in prostitution. And those things play out in police interactions where they'll literally walk up to black women on the corner and write on a complaint that they, she was wearing a short skirt and fishnet stockings and a low-cut shirt and therefore she must be loitering for the purposes of prostitution. And that's the way um, broken windows policing plays out, particularly for black and brown women. So in New York City, they found that 85% of arrests for this charge were of black and brown women, just like 88% of stops were of black Mm. and brown people. So identical rates of racial profiling, but one we're talking about and one we're not. The consequences, the Legal Aid Society of New York City is challenging that uh, statute in court as one that is um, too vague to be constitutionally applied and one that is susceptible to racial profiling and, in fact, as applied, is resulting in racial profiling, but of a population where we don't usually pay attention to how black women and women of color are racially profiled. You you just said um, in in talking about this example, one we're talking about and one we're not, the disparities, you know, African-American men being stopped um, for stop and frisk and what's happening with African-American women in terms of this loitering with the whatever prostitution that the cops uh, hit them with. And when you and I uh, were talking about your book on on WNYC uh, a while back, a while back, it's like last year, <laughs> last year, last it still summer. feels, it still feels like it was just, just a few weeks ago. But one of the things you said was in terms of this, the, the title of the book, Invisible No More, you said, let's look at where we're looking more intensely. Flesh that out. So for, what that meant was I was just talking about in terms of if we're looking at stop and frisk, let's look already where we're already looking more intensely. Let's look at stop and frisk and see if we can't unpack where the experiences of women um, are taking place and what it looks like. And so what you find is if you analyze the stop and frisk data by both race and gender, you see identical rates of racial disparity among stops of women as you do among stops of men. If you look at traffic stops and you um, identify both race and gender of people stopped, you will see that, for instance, in Ferguson, the year before Mike Brown was killed, the group of people who were stopped most often for traffic stops were black women. And across the country, racial disparities in traffic stops, identical uh, rates of racial disparity among stops of women as stops of men. So in other words, black women are being picked up for driving while black. Um, And that's something that we should know from Sandra Bland's story. It's something that we should know from the story of the Florida attorney general who recently was pulled over for who knows what, supposedly, to darkly tinted glasses, right? Or wind, um, windows uh, on window, her car. Windows mm-hmm. on her car. And uh, as we should know from the Oscar-nominated documentary Traffic Stop that was just uh, nominated for an Oscar in the last round, which documents the traffic stop of a young school teacher in Austin, Texas named Breon King, who was pulled over for speeding and then subjected to being thrown around like a rag doll by the police officer who stopped her and pushed over the hood of a car in ways that look very similar to stops of black and brown men, except in this case, it was a hundred pound school teacher um, who, you know, had never been stopped before. Why, as you're talking about her, I'm thinking in terms of just sort of raw emotion and the way the American people react to things. You would think that stories about a hundred pound school teacher or person being pulled over in a traffic stop, being hurled around by law enforcement would capture the, the, the nation's imagination and say, this must stop and, and we, we shouldn't be going through this. I mean, we, I don't know if there's video of that traffic stop, but we all watched the Sandra Bland video and there, was, there, were, there were protests and we say her name 
But there's no conversation at all anymore, it seems, about anything that's happening to people of color, particularly uh, African-American women who get abused by the police. Absolutely. And I think the thing about Sandra's story or Breon's story is that they get taken a sort of one story, kind of an anomaly, sort of like a traffic stop that happened to capture a woman instead of the usual targets, black men. And so we'll talk about it in sort of a moment of outrage and um, being disturbed by it, but then we don't incorporate that into our analysis. So we all know the name Sandra Bland, but we don't talk about how black women's experiences of racial profiling should shape our policy solutions, our legislative solutions. We don't talk about the fact that maybe Sandra Bland's story or Breon King's story should tell us that we should pass the End Racial and Religious Profiling Act, which now, since 2015, bans profile, would ban profiling based not only on race and religion, but also gender and sexual orientation. Because in those instances, those women were being stopped as black women, right? And, and you know, for many reasons that are caught up in their identities, both as women and as black. And so... I think that that's the next step, right? We know those names now, and um, it's great that Traffic Stop was nominated for an Oscar, but it didn't generate the conversation that um, a film perhaps about a black man who had been pulled over by police and was seen as sort of emblematic of a larger problem of police violence in the country might have garnered in the same position. Breon King. She is the, the, the female version, it sounds like, of Philando Castile. Well, she wasn't killed. and that's, well, the, tr- Okay, she, so she, was, she wasn't killed. She did live. Um, but let me say this. There's a woman named uh, DeCynthia Clements who was killed in Chicago um, following a traffic stop who was shot by police officers as she was exiting her car, which was on fire at the time that, it was, that she was exiting it. You don't know her name? Most no, people don't. I, and in and, fact, as I was looking on your on your Twitter feed, and I you have pictures of her and the stories, and I was like, "Who is this? I didn't didn't. When did this happen?" And last week, you know, her family has been outside the police precinct every single day since she died, since she was killed. Um, there was a protest the day after she was killed. So it's not like our communities aren't still organizing around. Um, black women's experiences of police violence. People did come out for Sandra Bland. Right. Um, but it doesn't make the same national headlines. It doesn't inform our analysis of the issues. It doesn't inform the solutions that we pursue. It doesn't, it's not part of our national conversation around these issues. And so that's where I think the question of looking more carefully where we're already looking and making sure that what we find there, the women's stories that we find there inform how we think about policing, how we think about profiling and what the solutions are um, is really the key to moving past visibility to action that's actually going to save the lives of people like Sandra Bland, like DeCynthia Clemens, make sure that women like Breonna King never have the experience that she had and so on. Do people care? I mean, listening to you talk about this, I just sit here and think clearly people don't people don't care. And that's why you can have these horrific incidents. Some make national news for a hot minute. Others don't see the light of day, yet the community is energized. And yet nothing, nothing changes. I think two things. One, I mean, there was an excellent uh, piece in the Post about, you know, black police are still killing black people and we're not right. talking about it anymore. And I think in this moment, part of the problem is there's so much to care about, right? Uh, right. We're, we're under nuclear threat. We're, you know, deporting people, you know, by the thousands. We're ripping mothers from their children on the streets of, you know, California cities through, you know, border patrol going mm-hmm. up and rounding people up. Every minute there's a new threat. And you're just talking about those examples that you just mentioned, just one corner of this Absolutely. gigantic box of craziness that we've been going through. So and I that's think, just today. And that's just today. So I think that's that's one thing. I think there's so much to respond to now. Um, not that there wasn't always 
similar issues, but just right now it's, the concentration is intense. But I do think that it requires us to really radically uh, re-examine the function of policing and the ways in which our society perceives black people. Um, and to do the, both of those things requires us to really kind of shake the foundations of what um, most people sort of take for granted. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what um, makes this conversation challenging for folks to have beyond one case, one outrage, one protest. You know, in Breon King's case, on the way to the jail, she said to the police officer, why do, why do you treat us this way? How could you do this to me? I did nothing wrong and I just didn't deserve this. And he said, look, you know, black people have violent tendencies. That's what the police officer said. That's a perception of black people that is so deeply entrenched in the fabric, in the blood, in the nervous system of America that to, to, to really confront it beyond sort of looking for reforms like body cameras or excessive force policies or something else, really just I think people – you know, it's it's one that people it's a, it's a challenge people don't want to face. Well, right, because that means, and I would love it if you just break down the history behind behind that statement. He said something seemingly so simply and so glibly, and yet that simple phrase is at least what six hundred, no, yeah, six hundred or something years old in terms of the perception of black people in this country. And the perception of black people that led to the colonization of the African continent, that led to the Middle Passage, that led to enslavement of African peoples, that led to formations of slave patrols, the first police departments in this country that were about quelling rebellion of enslaved people, right? So the notion that black people are dangerous is deeply entrenched in this nation. And I think the piece that people don't pay as much attention to is the is the perception of black women as dangerous and threatening and menacing is as deeply entrenched in this country. How so? Well, I think one, you know, black women lived in homes with the people who claimed to enslave them. And people both sort of, there was sort of a mammy stereotype. And then there was the woman who was the threat who could poison your food, right? Mm -hmm. Or who could, um, you know, lead the uprising from inside the home. And I think that, and then the perceptions of black women that were required to put black women to work in a field, um, you know, right up until the moment of giving birth and right after, um, those perceptions of black women as animalistic, as uh, overly strong, as menacing, as just not human, persist in the ways that police officers interact with them to this day. So the last time we spoke, we talked about this recent study from the University of Washington in St. Louis that found that black women are the group that um, is the only group in this country for whom the majority of police shootings take place when they are unarmed. 60% of black women killed by police, according to this study, were unarmed at the time they were shot. So for police officers, the false perception of threat occurs most often with black women. So this notion of black women as menacing, as threatening, as superhuman, as overly strong and as likely to come for you and cut you or threaten you or harm you, even if they're just sitting in a car saying, could you please hurry up and write this ticket, presumably because she had to get back to teaching her school children in the afternoon and was just out for lunch, or, you know, Sandra Bland saying in a very calm tone of voice, do I have to put out my cigarette? I'm in my own car. That gets read, perceived, acted on. There's punishment of that as if that person was presenting a sort of monstrous threat because that's how society has taught us to perceive black women. Well, I mean, there's the there's the whole angry black woman that just the moment she raises her voice, she could go from raising her voice to doing God knows what. Exactly. And I think that's and also that literally police officers just punish 
black women for literally lifting their voice to ask a question um, because black women are perceived to have uh, no right to do so, no right to insist on being treated with dignity, no right to ask questions, no right to do anything but, you know, comply with this mammy stereotype. So Mm -hmm. I think... Again, this is where if we look more closely where we're already looking, we'll see that the criminal legal system was constructed as much to control the bodies and behavior of black women as it was to control the bodies and behavior of black men. In fact, as soon as slavery was over, um, women, black women had to be criminalized in order to put them back into domestic servitude. Black women left domestic servitude in droves in following emancipation, and the idea was to round them up, criminalize them for being too loud in the street, for having their children run wild in the street, for disorderly conduct, for loitering for purposes of prostitution, to put them back into the homes of white people to continue the domestic labor that was expected of them. So the criminal legal system was constructed as much to do that as it was to put black men back in fields, and also to put black women back in mm-hmm. fields. And so... That's, I think, those kinds of realities are the things that people don't want to confront. We also don't want to confront the fact that the, the way in which we've constructed safety and, and policing in our society requires the kinds of things that, that are happening, that we talk about, that we protest, but then kind of carry on uh, with the same approach. And that's where I think we really need to re-examine how we think about safety and how we go about achieving it. So this this notion of controlling black bodies, that the, the law is constructed around basically controlling black bodies, whether they're male or female. One of the things that, that you talk about in the book and that we've talked about in the past is that on top of all of this, the people who are entrusted by the state to control those, those bodies abuse the power that they have. And we see that in what happens when law enforcement comes into contact with black women. I think it was in Baltimore as a result of Freddie Gray. Am I remembering this right? Where the sexual misconduct of police just sort of came from out of nowhere. They were investigating one thing and then discovered that there was just rot within the Baltimore Police Department when it came to sexual misconduct. Talk about that. So this is a case of looking where we're not already looking and then finding the stories of women. So we look more carefully. We're already looking and we would see that black women were experiencing excessive force uh, in Baltimore and and disparate racial disparities in street stops and so on. But then, yes, we weren't looking at forms of police misconduct that weren't physical force, but that were sexual violence, extortion, and rape. And so in the same way that we're in the middle of this national conversation, or we were around policing and, and mass incarceration, but not paying attention to the stories of um, black and brown women, then at the same way, we're in the middle of this conversation right now about sexual violence and misconduct, and yet sexual violence and misconduct perpetrated by the people who have arguably more power than Harvey Weinstein has um, in society interacting with people on a daily basis in all manner of situations um, is is a kind of sexual violence that we're not talking about, sexual violence perpetrated by police officers. So what they found in Baltimore was that when police officers were interacting with women, black women who were or were perceived to be involved in prostitution, so now we're back to this area of policing where racial profiling is rampant, but also physical and sexual violence is rampant that we don't talk about because it involves black and brown women, not black and brown men, usually. Um, They found that police officers were routinely extorting sex from uh, black women or forcing sex from black women involved in prostitution in exchange for not arresting them or not charging them or maybe not charging them with something with prostitution in the name with a bit which could cause you to lose your housing, your kids, your job, your access to loans, many things, right? 
And so, um, and then they found the Baltimore Police Department was doing a terrible job of investigating, that they would not speak to the complaining witness for six months, eight months, that they would um, get one statement from the officer and drop the, the entire thing, that they were hearing the same thing about off the same officer over and over again and not doing anything about it. And unfortunately, I wish I could tell you that Baltimore was unique in this respect, and that was just a problem of one police department. But this is a national problem. It's a national epidemic. It's something that... Um, the Buffalo News found that a uh, police officer is caught in an act of sexual misconduct every five days. Every five days? Every five days. Over a 10-year period, they found that every five days an officer, ten- an officer was caught in an act of sexual misconduct. And those are just the ones who are caught, Jonathan. That's, and, the, and everyone will tell you, from Norm Stamper, the former chief of police in Seattle, to uh, researchers, to many of whom are former law enforcement officers, to advocates such as myself, to survivors, will tell you those numbers are just the tip of the iceberg. And so the degree to which this epidemic is happening in this country, that the Baltimore Consent Decree um, investigation just surfaced a tiny sort of glimmer of, um, is something that we really need to be looking at in this moment that we're talking both about police violence and uh, sexual misconduct in this country. Okay, so uh, this thing about one one every five days, those are the ones who were caught. Did anything happen to the ones who were caught? Not necessarily, and I wish I could tell you the conviction rates, um, but I don't know, and no one knows because no one collects data on this. So police departments, the federal government, no one right this time collects information on how many complaints of sexual misconduct are filed, how many are sustained, how many lead to criminal charges, how many lead to termination. There's no record, no national database where if, for instance, um, police officer Jones is terminated for engaging in sexual misconduct in New York, that um, someone who's trying to hire a police officer in Arizona could go look and say, oh, not Officer Jones. No, thanks. That's that's someone I don't want on my force because he might prey on young women here or women in the sex trade here, or women who might be using drugs here, or women who are immigrants here, or women who are transgender. We're not going to have someone who uh, preys on vulnerable people, survivors of domestic violence. Um, those are the groups that officers prey on, and um, there's no way to, to make sure that an officer who gets fired or leaves a department um, under a cloud of investigation for sexual misconduct won't be hired at the next one right now. And, and that's a sort of similar situation that we've seen just in, in general. If I remember right, Darren Wilson was someone who came, went to Ferguson from some other jurisdiction um, where that police department was a whole lot funky. I was going to say a little funky, but a whole lot funky. You, you mentioned transgender women, and we have to talk about transgender women because law enforcement treats them as if just automatically that they are prostitutes, that they are doing something for sex. There was a case of a, a transgender woman in a park in New York, just there. So many, so many. I mean, trans women talk about this as um, what they call walking while trans, which basically means they can't walk down the street, whether they're walking their dog, they're on the way to the bodega, they're on their way to uh, meet a friend, they're on their way to get coffee. No matter what they're doing, they are read by police officers as being inherently engaged in prostitution and picked up under this, these kinds of statutes, loitering for the purposes of prostitution, et cetera. And, you know, that's part of being a woman of color because they're, they're women of color who are being profiled like many other women of color. And also the ways in which police read gender nonconformity as some form of indication of sexual deviance and of indication of proclivity towards engaging in prostitution, which is equally rooted in history. So I think we're familiar with the ways in which police are, were, you know, have been constituted and continue to police the lines of race and, for instance, poverty or class. But the police have always been about policing the lines of gender. 
And they've always been about doing that, um, whether it was under cross-dressing laws or under bathroom laws. Oh, right. The, the bathroom bill. Right. Which, you know, you don't need a bathroom bill to police and harass uh, trans people using a bathroom consistent with their gender identity. It happens across the country. It just usually happens under broken windows policing. That broken windows policing gives police officers so many tools to arrest anyone who's seen as out of order or disorderly or uh, perceived as lewd or just somehow out of place that officers can use any number of uh, laws to arrest people for using a bathroom, disorderly conduct, criminal trespass, lewd conduct, and they do every single day. So I certainly want to lift up and celebrate the victories of trans advocates who have beat back those bills in Texas, who are fighting those bills in North Carolina. And it's incumbent on all of us to stand with our trans siblings to beat back the ways in which broken windows policing and other kinds of policing uh, produce the same result every single day across the country, including here in D.C. I wrote in the book about a woman who um, went into the bathroom. She was on the local football team. She didn't necessarily even identify as trans. She was masculine presenting. Went to the bathroom in TGI Fridays, got arrested for going to the bathroom. Just for going to the bathroom. Right. And uh, I tell another story of a woman who was um, stopped and frisked on on the metro here in D.C. And the police officers uh, made her open up the front of her pants, noticed that she was wearing men's underwear and said, why are you wearing that? So um, that's the way in which gender is policed on a daily basis. Um, Trans women in D.C. talk about routinely also being profiled as being engaged in prostitution. There was one study in D.C. that talked about trans uh, one in five trans women being approached for sex by police officers. And trans women are definitely leading the charge here in D.C. to um, decriminalize the equivalent of the loitering for purposes of prostitution statute here for these very reasons. That this is a site uh, where racial profiling, gender profiling, gender policing, physical violence, sexual violence takes place with impunity in ways that if it was taking place against other members of black communities in a different context, we would be uh, far more systemically outraged Mm -hmm. um, and be uh, calling for action far more uh, frequently. And one of the things um, where where trans people get caught up with law enforcement once they've been profiled by the police as being engaged, potentially engaged in some sort of prostitution, is that when they're searched and they find syringes on them, talk about the significance of that. There's an assumption that um, they those are uh, drug paraphernalia, which here in D.C., you know, possession of drug paraphernalia or in any place around the country, possession of what's perceived to be drug paraphernalia can is a charge in and of itself. Um, and then more recently, I think some departments are, are criminalizing trans folks for if you don't have access to health care, gender affirming health care that's covered by, you know, regular health care, then people do what they can do, right? And so that there's a criminalization of the hormones you might acquire some other way, right? Um, or, or treatments you might acquire some other way. And then and then the syringes might uh, be seen as evidence of that. As right. opposed to asking a trans person if maybe they might be diabetic. Right. <laughs> or, you know, there's just a million assumptions that happen um, when police interact with trans folks that just have to do with this assumption that they must be up to no good mm-hmm. that, and, and they must be up to some kind of deceitful activity as well because of um, their gender identity. And I think... Again, sort of as a nation, this is something that we need to grapple with, not only because it's producing huge rates of criminalization of trans people. Most people know that one in three black men will face incarceration in their lifetime. Most people don't know that one in two black trans women report incarceration in their lifetime. So one statistic galvanizes a movement. I argue the second one should too, and it should uh, make us think about ways in which that criminalization looks similar and the ways in which it looks different and the ways in which all of us need to address it and also be responsible 
for making sure that we also address the epidemic of violence against trans women that's killing, you know, dozens by the first quarter of every year and that um, in our communities and, and realizing that they're not receiving protection from the places they're you know, ostensibly supposed to re- receive protection from. And in fact, they're experiencing more violence from police. There's a group in Atlanta that put out, um, it's called the Solutions Not Punishment Coalition, that put out a report called The Most Dangerous Thing Out Here Is the Police. Hmm. And for black trans people in Atlanta to say the most dangerous thing out here is the police is saying something. And so they have um, led a campaign to find other ways um, of dealing with uh, broken windows policing, of of trying to basically get rid of broken windows policing, because that is creating opportunities for police to abuse uh, them and members of their community for standing around outside, basically, and to create... Um, a program where instead of being arrested, people get access to housing, they get access to the things that they need, they get access to treatment if they need it, if they want it, they get access to um, whatever it is that they need that might reduce their contact with the police. Right. Because that's the goal. So we have to talk about the one area where, whether it's, you know, abuse of power by, by police or how women end up you know, getting mixed up in the whole uh, criminal justice system, and that is the war on drugs. Yeah, you wrote uh, an op-ed for the New York Times back in well, that was last year, last July. The headline on the piece is eye-popping: "A Warrant to Search Your Vagina," and that headline comes from a specific case from 1986 involving Shirley Rodriguez. Tell the story of Shirley Rodriguez. I will. I, do, I just want to say I didn't pick the headline for that story because I, I don't want to. I don't want to privilege um, people who have vaginas in this conversation because body cavity searches of all kinds are experienced by all members of Black communities and Brown communities in the context of the war on drugs. There is a way in which the war on drugs is waged on the bodies of Black and Brown women that does involve these cavity searches that we don't often talk about. So in her case, uh, the police officers had received some tip from someone that they had bought drugs from her house and that in the process, somehow she went to the bathroom a few times. Based on this, they went to not a judge, but to a clerk of a judge and got a warrant to search her vagina. And they showed up at her house at three in the morning to serve the warrant, pulled her out of her bed, um, told her to search her own vagina, basically, and she's declined, and then took her to um, a doctor where she says she was forced onto a table held down by a nurse and subjected to an involuntary gynecological exam. Of course, she sued. Um, and while the courts found that there was not there was probable cause to proceed with that, so they basically said you can get a warrant to search someone's vagina, that's still true. They said in her case, you know, that going to a clerk, maybe the clerk wasn't the best judge. Maybe it should actually be to a, an actual judge, a judge. <laughs> right, who decides whether something is sufficient, particularly in that kind of case. So the, the, the lawyers who sued and, and Shirley herself won some measure of victory in that situation. But the reality is, is that black and brown women are routinely profiled as vessels for drugs that are consumed or concealed somehow. And that led, for instance, to these pervasive um, cavity searches and monitored bowel movements at airports at O'Hare and D.C. and in Florida that were the subject of hearings before Congress in 2000 and a report by the government 
the GAO. And government accountability office. Um, and so that was an issue in the 2000s that sort of flared, got national attention, and then subsided. And what people don't realize is those searches continue to take place not only at the border, but also on the highways and streets and roadways and in the homes um, of black and brown women across the country. In, in that op-ed, you write about, you, to your point, there was one particular case where it was either one woman or two, one woman or two women there in full view of everyone were had a, a vaginal cavity search there, yeah. right out there on the side of the road. I talked this, told the story of Sharnesia Corley, who um, was driving to the store to get uh, some medication for her grandma and allegedly didn't stop at a stop sign. I don't know any of us who haven't pulled a rolling stop at some point, but in her case, the officer uh, pulled her over, claimed he smelled marijuana on her, called a female officer to the scene who then proceeded to pull her pants down, force her to the ground, force her legs apart, and manually search her vagina for what a dash cam video shows is 11 minutes. So, (laughs) and this is the way the war on drugs is waged on the bodies of black women. This is the war on drugs that Jeff Sessions wants to ramp up. Because remember, this was about marijuana, right? This wasn't about, you know, are you transporting a kilo of heroin inside of you, right? It was about, I smelled some weed in your car. This happens. Um, It happened to two other women who were driving home from the beach one day in Galveston, Texas, and same traffic stop. Officer claims he smells weed, and suddenly they're inside their car. In in Charnesia's case, she was in Broadview at a gas station in Houston. In their case, they were inside their car, but being what they very much experienced is sexually assaulted by an officer sticking their fingers inside of them without their consent. It's clearly unconstitutional. Let me just be clear that that is not permitted by the Constitution. But it, but it happens. Exactly. So, but, but Andrew, so how? Why? Because of these it, deep-rooted perceptions that, one, black women's bodies are inviolable. You can, you, you can put them up on an auction block and inspect them in any way you want to, and you can search them for drugs in any way you want to. It's, like, again, a clear line of Black History Month and Women's History Month going right into these interactions with police officers. And then secondly, that discovering some amount of drugs is more important than the dignity and and bodily integrity of a black woman. That's the way society has set up this war on drugs. So it's not just there. It's, again, going to the place of looking where we're not already looking. We could talk about walking while black, and we can talk about giving birth while black. When black women give birth, they are up to 10 times more likely to be sometimes non-consensually have their blood drawn, their umbilical cord blood drawn, and tested for drugs. And in some cases, that leads to them being arrested and removed from the delivery room where they just gave birth to their baby on charges of delivering drugs to Speaking a minor. Speaking of constitutionality, it, is that constitutional? It's been challenged and found to be unconstitutional, but that doesn't mean it doesn't happen. What's, so what recourse does anyone have to being cavity searched in public or in the back of their own car or in a hospital? What recourse does that mother who's given birth have for having her umbilical blood being taken with, I'm sure she's not there in the delivery room signing consent away. And and if she is, she may not know, you know, uh, in that that moment what what for. But the recourse is to the courts. But there's something happening to the courts right now as among these many fires that are going on right now right. that we're talking about. And I think that more and more the notion that, um, again, like finding drugs and, and um, demonizing black mothers, because just to be clear, black women and white women use drugs at equal rates during pregnancy. But during prenatal tests and delivery, 
um, black women are up to 10 times more likely to be tested for it. And if that happens, the result is, is more likely to be a criminal charge than supportive treatment. And so, again, it's sort of how we perceive black women, how we perceive their parenting, how we deserve, perceive their, their deservingness as mothers, as how much we, privacy we accord them, their lives, their bodies. And so when these cases come in front of a court, the hope is that, you know, a Fourth Amendment violation will be found. The hope is maybe a Fourteenth Amendment violation will be found. But that means you have to get to court. That means you have to get in front of a judge who doesn't hold the very same beliefs as the people who did this. And that means you have to... if if you lose in front of that judge, have the capacity and wherewithal to bring an appeal and an attorney who will do it for you. And then really, in the end, it, the perceptions that drive this kind of behavior by police drive the perceptions of juries, of judges, of prosecutors. And it's very difficult to, I mean, the, the notion that we're getting equal, equal justice in this country as black women and women of color is uh, very fraught, particularly if we're low income, particularly if we're perceived to be drug users, if we're perceived to be uh, in the sex trade, if we're perceived to be bad mothers. And there's just... No way to guarantee that going to court, um, much as I love my, you know, alma mater's uh, belief that the Constitution and, and uh, you know, the legacy of Thurgood Marshall will bring us to freedom. There's no guarantee that in the courts you're going to find justice for black women in these situations. Andrea J. Ritchie, attorney and a researcher in residence at the Barnard Center for Research on Women and the author of Invisible No More, Police Violence Against Black Women and Women of Color. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real honor. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. If you like Cape Up with Jonathan Capehart, you should check out some of our other great podcasts. Like, Can He Do That?, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. Or try Retropod, a daily show for history lovers featuring surprising stories about the past, rediscovered. You can find these shows anywhere you listen to podcasts and learn more online at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. The Washington Washington, Washington, Washington Post. Post.